The Start On Demand. On demand. A bombshell from the Winnipeg Police Service Chief Danny Smythe reaction from Mo Sabrin, Winnipeg Police Association President, and what is at the heart and what is the concern for the police chief in the city of Winnipeg. We'll also talk about the changing face of retail in Manitoba. 12,000 storefronts are anticipated to close in the United States this year. That's double last year. What is the vacancy rate like in Winnipeg? And what are different makers, entrepreneurs, retailers doing to get your money? We'll talk to Chandra Kremsky. She is the founder, co-founder of Third and Bird. We'll also talk about Fringe Festival, one of my favorite times of the year in Winnipeg. It gets underway tonight in Winnipeg. Without further ado, let's get right down to business. Monday evening was a busy night for Winnipeg Police Service, an already busy police force dealing with something that creates an extreme stress on available resources. Here is Constable Rob Carver with the details. Winnipeg Police General Patrol officers observed a stolen vehicle being driven in the area of Monroe Avenue and Watt Street. The vehicle came to a dead-end lot and a marked Winnipeg Police cruiser car pulled behind it. The suspect vehicle then drove directly at officers and they discharged their firearm in response. The suspect vehicle rammed the police car and then fled. The suspect vehicle was able to flee a short distance before crashing into a building in the area of Watt and Larson. One suspect was located in the vehicle. A conducted energy weapon, also known as a taser, had to be deployed by officers in order to safely place the suspect under arrest. A second suspect that had not been seen in the vehicle was able to get back out of the vehicle and into the police cruiser, which he then stole. That cruiser, stolen cruiser drove through the Elmwood neighborhood until it was finally abandoned in the area of Harbison Avenue and Glenwood Crescent. The second suspect male then fled on foot and he remains at large. Interesting story. <laughs> yep, that's one way of putting it. I feel like every day when we see these news releases, you used to get them, you know, daily from police and often it was minor things or major things, but, you know, you would never go, what? And yesterday again was a what because of how the story continues to go. And we, we often discuss this idea of heightened concern over assailants who are willing sure. to confront a police officer face to face. We've had the reports of people confronting police officers as they're leaving a Winnipeg police headquarters downtown. There was a crazy story earlier this year of, of a suspect throwing a propane tank, I think it was, yes. at a Winnipeg police car. And so increasingly we are saying... What is happening that these suspects, these thieves, would be the brazen nature of what they're doing? It's one thing to uh, steal something. It's another thing to say, I'm going to steal something and go on the run. And, oh, now I'm going to steal from the guy whose job it is to, to track me down. Well, this, uh, this heightens the police awareness and concern as well uh, when suspects are prepared to steal a police car. Well, it's concerning, and we're certainly we're looking at, at not only policies but uh, systems to see whether or not we can make some changes that'll limit that from happening again. Uh, roughly, when was the stolen cruiser found abandoned? Oh, oh uh, uh, minutes later. Yeah, it wasn't uh, uh, ten minutes somewhere in that neighborhood. So, one of the things that happened here this morning, and I just like to touch base on this, is that. 
This happens last night at uh, at 8.55 p.m. This is an incredibly chaotic uh, scene. We've got officers who had to discharge their weapons. We've got a smashed police car. We've got a stolen police car. We've got multiple, multiple units in the Elmwood area. We've got a building that's been smashed into with an abandoned stolen vehicle. Now, one person under arrest where the arrest had required a significant use of force. Taser was deployed huge amount of police resources and those resources are focused on doing the operational end of this. They're not back writing reports and they can't do that until this gets wrapped up. So this morning media certainly was aware that something had gone on in Elmwood. We were being asked questions and I can tell you that at 7, 7, 15, 8 o'clock this morning, uh, people in the building, people like myself, were still unable to kind of pull everything together. Because we don't have the luxury of standing, or sitting there and reading reports and going, okay, this happened, this happened. We've got bits of information coming from uh, dispatch information, coming sort of anecdotally from some officers as they're trying to get their reports done. Senior investigators, detectives are being briefed. We've still got a mail outstanding. So it's kind of an apology in terms of... Um, uh, when, when I'm asked questions early in the morning and I say, I can't tell you, it's because I, I just don't know. And, and we don't have the luxury of, of, of guessing. I, I can't tell you, I think this is what's happening and then have to dial it back after because ultimately this is part of a criminal investigation and we're not allowed to just guess. And also that sort of flows into the fact that we wanted to get this out and we really worked hard to make sure we had enough to be able to explain to the media what happened. But I don't have a lot more details because it's still sort of being pulled together at the time of writing this. And of course, when Carver references the media, Loren, mm -hmm. he by extension means us and he means the public. Uh, we often get news tips and calls or emails about police activity in the city. And we can't always count on timely information from Winnipeg police for the reasons outlined in that clip. It's quite often not because they don't want to share with us. It's because they don't have enough information to give us the story as it needs to be presented from a legal point of view. We are doing always doing our best to find out when you call us and say, hey, huge police presence, XYZ location to find out exactly what's going on. Sure. And I think that that's fair, and that's a fair point to be made. Uh, also worth pointing out, Greg, this is one of two stolen police vehicles <laughs> in the city Monday night on the opposite side of the city from the Watt Street incident, or is it Wyatt, sorry? Watt. Watt, thank you. Yep. Uh, Winnipeg Police Service car being stolen. A vehicle from another jurisdiction was in Winnipeg with a unauthorized driver. Seen traveling in the area of Roblin Boulevard in the West Perimeter Highway. The vehicle was fully marked, was a fully marked police vehicle belonging to Manitoba First Nations Policing. That vehicle traveled extensively throughout the city. Then at approximately 8 a.m., uh, a tire deflation device, the one we use as a stop stick, was deployed in the area of Dawson Road and La Jamaudier Boulevard. The vehicle was stopped and one adult male was arrested and is currently in police custody. Charges have not yet been laid. And as we mentioned earlier, Loren, on the Winnipeg Police Service scene, we are trying to verify reports of this letter to members of the Winnipeg Police Service uh, purportedly sent from Police Chief Danny Smythe. The letter said to be a pep talk of mm -hmm. sorts. Yeah, I put an ask out to the Winnipeg Police Service about this letter as well as to the chief on uh, what he penned and what, he, what, what he'd like 
the Winnipeg Police Service members to hear. Similar letters, you know, it, it, we're in a state of flux, I think, in this province and city with different issues going on. This letter that's gone out uh, is talking to them and acknowledging them from our understanding, acknowledging the challenges that they're facing and their resources that they're struggling to work with or without, not too dissimilar to a letter that went from the WRHA a few months ago mm-hmm. that talked about a valley of despair that employees were in, just, you know, acknowledging again, uh, things are going on in our city that we're grappling with, and that's making things difficult. Throughout the day today, we're focusing on the future of retail. Right, and the signs that you might see out there or in your travels across Canada or the States this summer. So there might be for lease, for rent, for sale. Across North America, a growing number of spaces are sitting empty. And in the U.S., it's actually leading to what they're calling, or analysts are calling, a retail graveyard. With a core site research uh, predicting that 12,000 stores south of the border could be closed this year. If that prediction rings true, Loren, it would be double 2018's total. Already this year, we've heard from companies like Payless Shoes, which said in February it would close 2,600 stores in the United States and Canada, and shops like Victoria's Secret, JCPenney, and Office Depot, which have admitted they've been struggling for years and are closing some of their stores in the United States. The rise in e-commerce, of course, is partly to blame as more and more people go online to shop. Actually, as we speak, Amazon, I think, is it Amazon Prime Days? Is that what they call it now? It's in the midst of a massive 48-hour blitz. And that two-day shopping extravaganza, which is of Amazon's own invention, actually rivals Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Billions is being spent right now. So does that have an impact on retail spaces here? Have you seen more vacancies in shops and strip malls in your neighborhood? Do you shop more online than you used to in stores? Dan Chuby is the managing director of Colliers International and yesterday shared with me the trends they're now seeing in Winnipeg. Retail in Winnipeg has been an interesting evolution over the last few years. We, we historically would have trended in between 45 to 6% uh, vacancy in, in Winnipeg and we spiked in 2015 into 16 as Target abruptly closed its doors, uh, increasing vacancy in Winnipeg to approximately 8.1% based on the inventory that Collier's tracks in our retail index. That said, we also saw the closure of Sears in 2018, Uh, but within 2018, we actually saw a reduction in our vacancy here in Winnipeg to 6.5%, which is where we're trending today. And there's a couple of key influencers that have caused that. There's been new entrants into Winnipeg, and one specific industry that we really recognize that has contributed to absorbing a lot of that retail space uh, would be fitness retail. So we've seen fitness retail expand really in all price points. You have discount fitness retailers up to the more premium price uh, fitness concepts. But um, in in general, those retail co- those fitness retail concepts in 2017 2018 would have absorbed or or uh, taken over 150,000 square feet of space, which is approximately one percent of the space in that we track in Winnipeg. And into 2019, we're actually looking at uh, accelerating that trend of over 200,000 square feet of retail just to. Uh, uh, attributed to fitness retail alone. Well, so we're all, and we're also seeing a repurposing of some of that space. We look at the the Target building itself in, in the Polo Park area, 
um, office concepts like 24-7 in touch would have taken about half of that space to expand their footprint here in Winnipeg with over, I believe, 40,000 square feet attributed just to the office space there for uh, for 24-7 in touch alone. So we, we are seeing an, an evolution, an actual reduction in our vacancy rates in retail, um, and it's attributed to either new entrants or repositioning of that inventory into things like office space as well. You mentioned the idea of uh, gyms. I think the gym I go to right now is is in an old blockbuster space or one of the movie companies, you know, that shut down. And so the gym has moved in there. And so is the idea, Dan, that you have not necessarily traditional retail taking over those spots? It's not a new store per se, but it is a different kind of feature. For, for sure. And and while some industries obviously suffer as retail evolves, there are new industries that, that grow. Obviously, health and wellness is, a, is exploded over the previous few years. So people are looking for different uh, concepts in order to get their uh, worker routines in. So that is where th- those industries are capitalizing on those trends. So there is examples for sure where industries like um, health and wellness and, and fitness or even cannabis, which is an entire new, entirely new industry across, across the country, is starting to absorb some of those retail spaces. So there's either new entrants coming in or, again, uh, landlords are getting creative with how they're utilizing their space. Are you hearing at all that there is an impact of you know that love of online shopping that's forcing retailers to think different or are you losing spaces as a result of uh, an increasing online trend? I think in general, while, while online is growing, um, as, as I said, we are seeing, a, again, an evolution in retail where consumers still do want to feel and touch the products uh, that they are buying. I mean, for, for myself, if I'm going to buy a pair of shoes or a suit, I'm, I'm never going to purchase that online. I'm still going to want to look and feel and touch and experience it. Um, Apple's another case in point. I mean, their stores are all about the experience. While you may purchase a product online, there still needs to be a connectivity to the actual brand and the ability to have a conversation about those brands where we feel that, that retail will always play a strong role in that. So while, while retail is evolving for sure and online is growing, uh, there's always going to be an opportunity for uh, the bricks and mortar stores to enhance that experience overall experience with their brands. So obviously it's his job. That's Dan Chuby with Colliers International. His job is real estate. His job is to sell the bricks and mortars. So he's going to have that that positive outlook of it. But interesting, so the vacancy rate is 6%. If you remove Sears from the equation... You've got St. Vitale and Polo Park. Right. Kildonan is now filled with different restaurants. I think there's a Filipino restaurant that's moved in there. Well, a couple they're other be build, things. They're building a new uh, movie theater, so sir. The, the vacancy rate is based on square footage. If you remove Sears from the equation, the retail vacancy rate space in Winnipeg would actually be about 3 3.5%. And so as far as he's concerned, that's a pretty decent average considering the climate we're in right now. And if you drive by just about any strip mall in Winnipeg, they're all renovating, they're upgrading their outside. Hey, uh, Loren, uh, we're uh, going to be covering two election campaigns in quick succession here at 680 CJOB Global News. Yeah, provincial election less than two months away. The federal election just shy of three months away. But in the middle of the summer, I'd like to know from you, 780-6868, are you even paying attention Or maybe you've already made up your mind. When it comes to who runs this country, opinion hasn't changed much in the last few months. A new poll out this morning, and you might have heard this with Jeff, a new poll out by Ipsos done exclusively for Global News shows the majority of Canadians want change in Ottawa. 
37% saying they'd vote conservative if a federal election was held tomorrow. The Liberals have 31% support, the NDP 17. And and we saw the Conservatives kind of take over the lead a few months ago post-SNC-Lavalin. And so we're going to be talking about this uh, throughout our show and others just in terms of will this stick or come a election time, do the numbers sometimes shift back? Because that often happens too. We know that Ontario is key, and there's a wild card in terms of Ontario that we'll discuss later on this morning. Getting more local now, we know that lobbying happens in politics, with everyone from corporations to unions working to get meetings, or even just a phone call with a political staffer or the politicians themselves. It happens, but how comfortable should we be with it? Here's why we're asking. In a tweet sent yesterday by Transcona Councillor Sean Nason, he writes, quote, Starlight Investment Teams, and by the way, Starlight is the team behind the Portage Portage Place possible sale. So he writes, Starlight Investments Team invited council to dine at the Inn at the Forks today to discuss the sale of Portage Place. I feel it is offside and, well, lobbying as it is on the council agenda. I won't be attending, Sean writes. So Starlight, again, is looking to purchase Portage Place, and that decision goes before council tomorrow. Councillor Nason says they were already briefed on the possible purchase, and so he's asking, is this lobbying, is this problematic for any voters? Sean Nason joins us now. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Okay, first of all, tell us about the invite. What was put in the email or the notice to you saying, look, come to lunch with us? Well, it was basically from a third party that was representing Starlight Investments to come and and have a wholesome question and answer session with with starlight investments and it just it it didn't sit right with me like we're you know discussing uh, you know a change in a downtown structure that uh, i'm hearing now from local constituents in the area that they're they're opposed to it um they have to come to council come before us and tell us why that they they think it should be a you know whatever whatever they're bringing forward yet um, the purchasers are able to hold private court with with council. What do we know about this proposal and how much of it do we know about that people could actually be opposed to it? Fill us in on that part of it, Sean. Well, formal plans for redevelopment haven't been put forward. We, we've got some notional uh, what they think that they can do. Like the original plan 30 years ago, they, they built uh, infrastructure on either end, on the east side and west side of, of of Portage Place to allow for towers to be built. Um, I'm sure that this this company is well known for for doing their their you know uh, proper due diligence with regards to sales. Uh, they've probably been through this. They, they got a billion dollars plus in assets, so obviously they they know what they're doing. Uh, this might be normal course of, of business at City Hall. I'm still learning things. Uh, it just this this didn't sit right based on timing of. You know, we've, we've got this pushed in the last two weeks of, uh, before council, and now, you know, having this this private meeting just didn't sit right. Wouldn't it be an opportunity to learn more about the project, Sean? Well, I think once the deal is done, then, yeah, great opportunity. But while we're in the course of deliberation on is does this deal make the most sense for the, the taxpayers of Winnipeg, I, I think we should have, you know, Possibly said thanks, but if you want to, if you want to have a question and answer session about what your plan is for the site, come to council on on Thursday and present your your thoughts. You have ten minutes. Come bring it. 
Is there any part of you that, you know, thought, look, I could go to this lunch and pay for my own lunch. Then I wouldn't feel like I'm accepting something from this company and then still might learn a little bit more. Because I did read some tweets back to you, Sean, where some were saying, well, you might have been helpful to be at this meeting. Yes, it might feel like lobbying. But if you pay for your own, does that take away the taint of it, so to speak, in your mind? You know, we we meet with, with various developers as, you know, before they bring stuff to council generally. If it's, if it's on the agenda, I, I generally don't like to have those kinds of meetings unless I discuss with the city planner and ask, you know, the planner, like, you know, are we okay to meet? Like, we're not going to put anything offside because, you know, the, 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 the integrity commissioner ruled that it, it's not offside uh, to, to go to this event. But it, from my perspective, you know, I try to apply some rotary principles. I'm actually at a rotary meeting right now um, to some of my thinking and going on. Integrity is very, very dear to me, and I want to make sure that everything I do, you know, goes along those lines. You know, this just didn't feel right. Well, I appreciate you being so forthright, uh, not only with your constituents uh, via Twitter, but uh, being willing to come and talk to us about it this morning, Sean. I just want to double back real quick, if I could, before we let you run and get back to your Rotary meeting. This idea that that you're hearing from folks that they're against this deal that most of us know very little about. What what are the objections you're hearing? Well, you know, these are Councillor Gilroy's constituents that uh, apparently are, are are very much opposed to it. They, they look at this, they look at the current model that's there as their community hub, and I think it's the fear, a lot of it's the fear of unknown. Uh, you know, and again, had, you know, had Starlight Investments presented themselves and, and perhaps representatives will be at council tomorrow in delegation uh, to, to, you know, let the community know what their plans are. Why is it that only council is hearing about what their plans are? You know, if we're going to be open and transparent, let's try to be open and transparent so that, you know, these fears of, of the unknown aren't, aren't as prevalent in our community. All right, Sean Nason, Transcona City Councillor. Thanks for your time, Sean. Thank you for making the time for me. 7.45, it is the start. McNabb? Up next, I'd like to read to you a section from the letter that we've just obtained obtained by the Chief of Police to uh, Winnipeg Police Service members about his concerns for the toll the rise in crime is taking on his uh, police officers and a question that he has, and, and I think you and I are both going to have, for how do we fix this? I want to hear from you as well. Did Sean Nason make the right decision, or should he gone to lunch to find out more about what could be happening with Portage Place? Lots on the table. Wednesday morning, Mackling and McNabb with you. Brett McGarry will be back on Monday. And if you're just tuning in, you missed Loren McNabb read a letter from Winnipeg Police Chief Danny Smythe. His concern for his members, their workload, what's going on, their morale, methamphetamine and more. And Loren, uh, for the benefit of those who are just tuning in, do you want to go through some of the highlights or shall we call them lowlights of this letter? Well, the letter was prompted. I, I think he probably came in Tuesday morning. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it sounds like he came in and saw you know the number of calls in the queue 
uh, another homicide that had occurred, a number of incidents that prompted him to start the letter off by saying that everybody should be feeling relaxed and recharged on a Tuesday. And he writes, that's not the case today. Today I'm tired and frustrated by what I see going on around us. He talks about uh, how the guns and gangs unit uh, has hit the ground running and he appreciates the work, but that, that they're challenged to keep up with the amount of drugs they're seeing on the street. He talks about the forensic unit and saying that the evidence being collected by our forensic personnel at break-ins and robberies is outpacing our ability to arrest and process those being identified as responsible for these crimes. And he says, I worry that we risk burning our people out if the pace continues. He's got a number of statistics on the calls for service. There used to be a time, Greg, I think, when 200 calls for service, 300 calls for service would have been exceptional. 300, uh, to my understanding, is sort of the threshold where that's when they know they are busy and they are not going to be able to meet all the demands of the requests from public for assistance. And that's a huge number. Uh, I also, you know, so to, Im- to imagine the um, number of calls that, Chief Smythe cites in this letter. 264 waiting in the queue on Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, which he acknowledges is down from the 300 that were waiting during parts of the weekend. But that seems to be a regular occurrence now with more and more calls going into police. So to, to imagine that that's now, I don't, we'll ask and what we've asked the questions. We've got a call out to the police as well as the chief of police asking him to come on if he wishes to explain further. But to imagine that sounds like that's now the norm. Is concerning. Let me read these numbers for you. During the weekend, this is directly from the letter now. During the weekend, the call takers in the communication center received and managed more than 2,700 emergency calls and 1,456 non-emergency calls, a total of 4,162 calls. An additional 874 calls were made to our non-emergency line that were diverted through the IVR, that's the Interactive Voice Recognition System, or otherwise did not reach the communication center. And it's not like our uniform members weren't doing their part. In fact, over 2,100 calls for service were dispatched and managed by general patrol members in the field. I commend all of you for the service you provide to our community day in and day out. The final line, and this is where we're now asking... Mayor Brian Bowman to respond. Premier Brian Pallister to respond. If you're an MP, respond. If you're a councillor who has concern about crimes, let us know. Because at the end of this letter, Chief Danny Smythe writes, I will continue to press our governments to take action. It's just hard to tell right now if anyone in government is committed to the actions necessary to help our community recover. Please hang in there. We are one with the strength and diversity of many, and we will never give up. So we've got calls out to the Premier, to the Mayor. Come on anytime and talk to us about what you think about this letter and what is being said here. And we'll have the police association, uh, the union for Winnipeg Police Service on at 845. Now I wanted to play for you some audio from Danny Smythe. February 8th, 2016, 18 months ago, Danny Smythe, his concerns then about resources at Winnipeg City Police being stretched to the maximum and what was keeping him awake at night at that time. Uh, I can go back to, you know, the walkway shooting that we had last year. We've had a couple of deaths that have occurred. Uh, There was a young man a couple of weeks ago that came off a balcony uh, in the St. James area. There's been some robberies that we've reported on. 
and we're recognizing more and more that many of these events are associated uh, to the to meth and to some of the people that are using meth. Uh, certainly, the other impact that it's having in our community beyond what's being reported in the news, it's having a huge impact on our public service resources, whether that be the police, whether that be fire, paramedic, whether that be our hospitals, uh, certainly it's having an impact there. One of the other things that I don't think I can, uh, I, I can understate is that often when we're encountering individuals that are kind of in that psychotic state of, of, uh, of, of the meth-induced uh, binge, if you will, is that it often puts our officers in a place where they are having to use force to, to control the situation. So it puts our officers in a, in a use of force situation um, and, and puts them and, and frankly the public and the victims themselves, the, the drug users at risk. That's from 18 months ago. And so much of what Danny Smythe says there could ring true for what we saw this weekend. If in you Winnipeg. didn't tell me that was a clip from today, I wouldn't have known any different. The part about how members are having to use different kinds of force. Uh, we, we know IIU has been involved in a number of incidents now investigating uh, a, a police or investigating a situation where police have had to use force and somebody else has been hurt. Again, there, there's so much to discuss here. We are going to have the police association kind of delve down into what they're seeing in terms of numbers. A question I have for them We've heard repeatedly there's enough boots, boots on the ground. The police have said that it's not a resource issue. That's what they've said months ago. I the don't union, know. If, the union disagrees. The union disagrees. I don't know if that's the case now. How many police officers might be walking away from this kind of job? We want to talk about food and plant-based proteins as if we needed more evidence that these proteins like Beyond Meat Burgers are taking off. An announcement this week that a new pea protein and canola protein production facility, I don't know if I've ever heard of canola protein, but a production facility is coming to Winnipeg. It's a joint venture between Burkhan Nutriscience Corporation and an investment group here in Winnipeg featuring three uh, well-known entrepreneurs. Johan Turgesson is the CEO of Burkhan Nutriscience and joins us now by phone. Good morning. Hi, how are you? And I apologize, Thank I should have just asked you, go ahead and say your name for us so I get that right for the rest of the segment. Yeah, I'm Johan Turkesson. I'm Burkhan's uh, chief executive officer. So what you mean is I nailed it. Good. Okay, <laughs> let's let's get right into this. Tell us what this plant will do, Johan. So the plant that we're building will we will be able to produce both our pea proteins and our uh, canola proteins. Uh, Burkhan, uh, unbeknownst to many Winnipeggers and Manitobans, has actually been operating in Winnipeg for almost twenty years now, doing research and development to develop uh, very high quality. Uh, pea proteins and and uh, canola proteins. So NutriScience has been uh, at the forefront of a lot of the research taking place in Winnipeg, uh, in particular uh, at Albertson Research Center, St. Boniface Hospital. I'm familiar with a lot of the research that they've been doing for several years with regard to pea protein, but canola protein, that's new to me. Can you explain that a little bit more, Johan? Yes, certainly. So, so canola protein is actually really exciting. Um, you know, up until now, for the most part, canola is used to crush, uh, to get the oil, extremely uh, valuable oil that's used in, in, in food. And up until now, most of the, uh, the meal, what's left of the seed after they crush the, uh, for the oil, goes to animal feed. 
What we do in our process is that we actually extract the protein uh, uh, from that starting material, and we separate it into two different proteins that occur in, in canola, and those proteins can be used. In the one case, they, they work brilliantly in beverages, and, uh, and that's the uh, certain protein from canola we call superteen, and the other protein uh, would be perfect for the kind of thing that everybody's talking about these days, veggie burgers, uh, that, sort of, uh, that sort of product. Well, it's a sector of food that's just exploded in the last year. We know stocks are up in all sorts of cases, and, and there's evidence out there that more and more people are seeking other kind of options for their meals. And so I can appreciate where the need for producing more of this crop and new protein productions is necessary. Where are we building this plant? Can you tell us that? So far, what we're saying is just adjacent to Winnipeg, um, and it's uh, it's it's... Right in, our, right in the, uh, the, your backyard, basically, is what I would say. We just haven't said publicly yet where it is. Can you give us a north, south, east, west to adjacent to Winnipeg? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, a no. <laughs> where, we, where, we curr- where we currently operate is we're actually in the south end of Winnipeg, actually. We're in the McGilvery Industrial Park. Right. So Fair you, enough. So you've got the plant coming, at production to be underway by 2020. What kind of size are we talking about? How many jobs? It, it, it'll uh, employ about 80 to 85 people. Um, we're building a 65,000 square foot building. In fact, actually, the building we're building will be large enough to double the size of the plant that we're initially putting in it. Um, we're really excited. We'll process about 20,000 uh, tons of field peas per year in the first phase. And uh, that is, uh, you know, by the standards uh, globally of the agri-food industries, that's not particularly large, but that actually is uh, going to be able to supply a uh, an enormous amount of protein uh, that we expect to sell all across uh, North America. So, Burkon, as you mentioned, been around for 20 years. The research and uh, everything that you've put behind the scenes is is uh, undeniable, I-, I can imagine. Now, talk about your partners here, because they were at the forefront of another food source or, or, or derived product, um, that is is as hot as a pistol right now. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited. So we're with the, the, the co-CEOs of the company that uh, we have uh, jointly founded uh, called Merit Functional Foods are uh, Barry Tomiski and Ryan Bracken. And they are, we're also partnered, uh, uh, Sean Crew, who was the original founder of Hemp Oil Canada. All three of them uh, were with uh, Hemp Oil Canada and its amazing growth. And if you followed that, it was actually, uh, they first uh, did a transaction in 2015 where it was partially acquired by a U.S.-based private equity firm. They continued to grow that company, and then just this February were acquired by Tilray in a, in a pretty landmark deal, a $419 million acquisition. They are uh, fantastic uh, uh, entrepreneurs and, and, and excellent business partners. And I said recently that, man, we've really hit the ground running. Uh, literally since uh, since originally funding this entity on July 2nd, we've already acquired the land, uh, already put in place the uh, engineering firms and construction firms uh, for, for moving forward. Uh, and in fact, as I speak, uh, they are down in the United States uh, meeting with some of the largest uh, food and beverage companies, the innovation scientists there, talking with them about our proteins 
which we expect to be selling by August of 2021 year, basically from today. Johan, this is a great example in my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, of uh, of science and research melding with our national, national or pardon me, our natural strength with regard to, to growing crops in Manitoba and turn, turning them and getting the, the maximum value out of those uh, of those agricultural products. It, it, it really is. Uh, you know, I'm actually a, a Winnipegger myself, or technically I'm actually from Gimli originally, but uh, Manitoba is absolutely a fantastic uh, place to do business. We have, uh, you know, amazing uh, talent in terms of the, the workforce. Uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, land, uh, fantastic hydroelectricity rates. And guess what? We're right there in the heartbed of, of growing field peas. Manitoba and Saskatchewan are the, are the dominant uh, places. In fact, Canada is the largest producer of field peas in the world. The same thing, of course, everyone knows for canola. Canola is uh, is Canada's crop, so this is really a, a made uh, you know a made at home. Uh, uh, we've already been a success story, and and, and expect to be uh, much more so going forward. Johan Turgesson, thank you so much for your time today, and we look forward to the uh, actual announcement and the location of this new plant. Very exciting news! Thanks for sharing with it it with us this thank morning. Thank you very much. Wow, that's really cool. Great news for people uh, for work in terms of 80 jobs. But also if you're a producer out there, there's been a lot of stress, especially for those growing canola about where their crop is going to go, the, the strained relationship with China, to hear that you now have something in your own backyard that might be willing to purchase your crop and get it out to the market in a whole new fashion, I think is great news for so many Manitobans. I think so many people get frustrated when we see our raw resources going to other countries, being processed there, and then coming back right. in finished goods. Have you ever read uh, some of the Italian pastas? Yeah, grown grown in the prairies. Yeah, but semolina, wheat, grown in Manitoba, sent to Italy for processing, and then we buy it back. Almost uh, an hour ago to the minute, we received a letter from Police Chief Danny Smythe. It was sent out to members of the Winnipeg Police Service. And, Loren, it contained some very startling information and some very powerful language. Honest words about the fact that the chief says he's tired and frustrated about what he sees going on around him. Uh, Questions about the fact that the forensics are collecting more evidence then they're able to arrest. So they, the, what they're collecting is outpacing their ability to arrest and process. Uh, the number for calls for service was extremely high over the weekend again. And of course, Chief Smythe saying, quote, it's just hard to tell right now if anyone in government is committed to the actions necessary to help our community recover. He mentions the meth crisis. We know it's not just meth, but there is a huge problem with crime in our city right now. Mo Sabarin is the president of the Winnipeg Police Association and joins us now. Good morning, Mo. For having me on this morning. Have you ever seen a letter like this from a chief of police? Is is this normal? Yeah, I'm going to say that's uh, completely unprecedented, and especially the strong language that uh, that he uses uh, in there. And I think the only thing that's missing is that uh, he should be saying, "I think we need more resources and more boots on the on the ground." Is that the fix, Mo? And and you know, we've had you on here in the past where you say that through attrition and non-replacement of uh, through retirement and, and other processes, you're down about a hundred police officers. Um, is that would that be enough to fill those positions? How many people are you talking about here? 
Uh, well, the exact numbers, uh, it would be very difficult to put a finger on it, but uh, I can tell you I was at a shift briefing last night and I asked the members about uh, the letter. Uh, I can really tell you that uh, the morale is really in the toilet right now. Um, and what the members are saying is, what has the chief done to help us, you know, handle these uh, amazing volumes of calls for service? Um, you know, it's it's okay to say that uh, he's been asking for help from the different levels of government, but uh, he truly hasn't um, taken the resources that he has because the mayor has made it clear that this is the budget you're going to get and we're not going to do anything. Uh, you're not going to get anything more. So um, I believe what the, the chief should be doing is taking the resources that he has and and concentrating them in the areas that they're needed. Well, what do you mean by that? Because we have had uh, Chief Denny Smythe come on in the past and, and perhaps not recently, but, you know, several months ago, talking about the fact that the meth crisis and the crime crisis isn't something they can arrest their way out of, making the point that it's not necessarily more boots on the ground. So can you be more specific? What, Where do you think the resources should be allocated if it's not about acquiring new ones? Well, if you, uh, and you have read his letter, um, he's talking about the calls for service, about the investigative unit, about the IDENT unit. Uh, those are all frontline, and those should be staffed right to the top. Um, there, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of areas within the service that I would call um, a luxury. And like taking, what? Um, uh, there, there, there's quite a few areas. Uh, right now, school resources, uh, there's um, community support units, um, those types of, of units. Uh, if um, general patrol is drowning, uh, like, and we do know they are drowning, uh, you should be taking those resources and putting them into general patrol, into investigative units, into traffic units. It's a tough job, though, because we have also heard in the past that if you don't have those community resource officers, mm-hmm. if you don't have officers in school, you're missing that opportunity to prevent the crime from happening, to stop the kids from growing up or entering in an era where you don't want them to. And so that's a tough decision to make when we talk all the time about not reacting, but preventing yeah, I, I don't disagree with you that it is a tough decision, but when you have uh, busy days of 418 calls for service, I'm not sure what uh, the precipitous was this time around with 256, but uh, you know, we, a couple of weeks ago, we topped out at 418 calls for service. Um, that's just unheard of numbers, and I believe we're going to see even more numbers like that uh, for the rest of the summer. So I I really think you have to commit resources to where they're needed most, and I believe at this point they are needed most in general patrol, in the investigative units, in IDENT units. The the people that uh, Chief Smythe did leave out is uh, we do have a number of support staff that we wouldn't be able to function without them. And I truly think that uh, they should be included in that because uh, the volumes of work that our staff members are doing is incredible as well. Uh, It's unmistakable whenever we have a conversation like this with you, Mo, questions will come up. But one of the very first places people are looking for you to maybe move resources is out of traffic enforcement and into Mm -hmm. criminal investigation. Tell us about the logistics of doing something like that. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's uh, it's a funny thing because any of the surveys that the service have done and uh, that we have done, one of the major complaints that uh, that surfaces is uh, people that are speeding and, and placing uh, people in danger uh, in that manner. So I think you would still have to ha- maintain um, some resources in traffic uh, because those are uh, very big concerns for the citizens. Uh, I, th- I would think that the big concerns are that uh, response times are probably the worst in Canada right now. Uh, we are the busiest uh, jurisdiction across Canada, and, and uh, our counterparts in Edmonton and Calgary are topping out at 40 and 35 calls for service. So comparing 418 Whoa. to... <laughs> Sorry, Mo. Uh, I, can you repeat just repeat that, that please? The, the, the other evening when there was the 256 calls for service, uh, some phone calls were made to cohorts out in Edmonton and Calgary, and they were sitting at 35 to 40 calls for service. Was that a, can you, a day of the week? Was that Saturday or Sunday? Or is that the, uh, I believe the it would yesterday? have been the Saturday. The Saturday. It would have been Saturday, yeah. So we're way up compared to other cities. Do you know our response time compared to other cities? Uh, I, I can't give you the exact numbers, but I do know that we do have probably the worst response times in, in the country. The, the chief mentioned the worry and the risk of people burning out if this pace continues. I, before we let you go, Mo, I want to ask about that and what you're hearing from members when it comes to taking leave, taking sick leave, or, or even just mm-hmm. saying, I don't want to, I don't want to be on this force anymore. Yeah, I, I think we have some very committed members, and I don't think you would see anybody quitting or resigning as a result of the, the volume of work. Uh, I think they've pretty much uh, gotten to the point where they know that, uh, you know, we're going to come in and we're going to be bailing this boat out, but the water's just going to keep coming in, so we're just going to do our best. Um, and they they are very dedicated, and they have tried to respond to as many calls as possible, but I can tell you that I hear from supervisors that uh, sick time is uh, through the roof. Uh, I don't have any numbers to compare from this time last year, but uh, as you pointed out earlier, 18 months ago, uh, Chief Smythe was uh, very concerned about uh, the the problems that we're facing and the calls for service that uh, we're responding to. You hate to say that this felt predictable and, and as though we, we knew it was coming, but I played Danny Spice comments from 18 months ago about how this meth crisis was keeping him awake at night. And when I played the clip, Loren said, that sounds like it could have been played Monday morning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, we, we've been saying this all along that, uh, you know, we're, we're just digging ourselves a hole and we're having a very difficult time getting out of it. Mo Sabrin, President, Winnipeg Police, uh, pardon me, I'm sorry, Police Association. Mo, thank you as always for your time. Well, thank you for having me on. We had a feature for you, a conversation about traditional retail and the vacancy rate in that traditional retail space in Winnipeg. Sits at about 6% in Winnipeg. Which which is pretty good. Collier's International feels is decent, particularly when compared to other cities in this country and also the fact that the United States is uh, saying they could double uh, the closures of stores in that country compared to last Up year. Up to 12,000 physical locations could be closing in the United States this year. So it had us thinking 
in the last couple of days about the changing face of retail and how we buy things, how we engage. It's Amazon Prime days. We don't really want to give them free advertising, but that is a fact. Joining us to talk about the changing face of retail, someone who's had an incredible impact on that change in our community, co-founder of Third and Bird, Shandra Kremsky, joins us in studio. Shandra, always great to see you and appreciate you taking some time to, to deliver some insight on how things are changing, how are they changing for the good? Um, I just think, at least here in Manitoba, uh, people are just more intentional with their purchases. And as you mentioned, you know, like you have that Amazon Prime over the weekend, but still people are thinking more locally versus throwing their dollars that direction. So one I feel- of the memes I saw going around social media was you don't need anything from Amazon today, shop local or something to that effect, because it was about saying like, you don't need that quick hit purchase all the time. More thoughtful, more local seems to be the vein. For sure. And when you go on Amazon Prime, their prices are like hugely undercutting other prices. So you got to wonder like, who is that hurting? Like, where are they getting that price cut? Because someone down the line has to be selling that product for a very cheap price or someone's paying the price on that. So I just feel like as far as like the local aspect, like when you're supporting those retailers or like the slow fashion or whatever, like you're you're putting the money back in, in families' pockets versus huge corporations or someone's yacht. Now, now for those that are unfamiliar, Third and Bird is a is a local marketplace. You you bring makers, as you call them, together in a one centralized location for the last couple of years. It's been in the basement HBC uh, Hudson Bay store downtown. You do that a couple times a year, an opportunity for people to 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 hold and touch and feel some incredible products made right here in Manitoba. And part of the question I had for you has to do with that mirroring of online and that ability to touch, feel, smell, taste, if you want, uh, the different products that are available at a market like Third and Bird. Yeah, I think, you know, you do need, you do need both. We are living in an era where everything, you know, there is a shift with online and using that as a tool to advertise. But you are right. People do want to touch, smell, eat, you know, experience that. And I think that's why our markets have been so successful is shoppers can come down. They can have that experience. They can get to know who their maker is, hear the backstory, have that connection with them. So then if they go down the road and do make a purchase from that maker online, they've already had that physical you know, interaction with that maker, you know, from coming to a market, for example. You're building or starting an actual relationship with them. I don't know if you'd know the number for this, Chandra, but I'd be curious to know how many people who who come and participate as businesses in Third and Bird don't have any storefront at all, that they have their online and then they use these sorts of events to give a bit of that personal feel because it might be unaffordable to have a storefront. The overhead can be really costly, but this combination allows them to get a bit of both worlds. Yeah, I think you're dead on. Um, I would say like more than 70% do not have a storefront. Um, some have been successful in getting into local shops, you know, like, so when you look at our local food producers, you know, they're in co-op in like the local section, uh, but many of them depend on markets to be their storefront, their pop-up for the weekend. And then, you know, their retail space is their home. I just love this idea of cooperation 
And we've had conversations in the past with the Craft Brewery Association here in Manitoba and how, yes, they're a competition, but there's more an air of cooperation within that industry because there's an understanding that there's a huge market. And if as a province, as a community, we have, there's a stronger presence overall, the likelihood of people choosing a craft beer, if they've got 30 craft beers to choose from versus two, the likelihood of people gravitating towards a craft beer is going to increase. And I always use the example of Cordon Avenue, once upon a time when it was a concentration of Italian restaurants and bars and patios. And you would say, well, I'm just going down to Cordon to grab a bite, or I'm going to go grab a drink on Cordon. You didn't necessarily choose the location until you got there. And so there's that benefit of cooperation. Absolutely. And I mean, it's a big movement within the maker community right now. Um, The whole slogan of saying community over competition. And it's it's huge right now. And a lot of uh, makers who are in this same genre, instead of looking at each other as competition or enemies or, you know, we can't We can't work together and we can't like each other. Now they're coming together and being like, all right, we're both in this together. Like you have your brand and your demographic of people. I have mine, but how can we make this work together? And I think it actually increases people's sales and I think it works really well. And so I'm glad to see that shift happen because it's proven. And I mean, even if you look in like the retail world of like gas stations, how many times do you see a Shell and a Petro side Mm. by side on the same corner or um, a Starbucks and, you know, a second cup on the same corner. Like it can work because it gives people choice. People love the choice. They love to have the options. We've talked about the local. We've got calls out today to find out in this day and age whether we're seeing more people venture into the entrepreneurship world. Business can be scary. Running your own business, I mean, you're taking incredible risk. Yes. But the reward can be big. I'm wondering what you hear from the newest entrepreneurs now in terms of why they're choosing it. It might be the product idea, but I'm wondering if it in some ways might be a bit easier because we have the online. We don't have to have the bricks and mortar. We don't necessarily right. have to have the overhead at the beginning. At, at the, the beginning, very least. absolutely. And I think the idea of being an entrepreneur is, you know, it's very appealing at the beginning, but a lot of people don't realize like the hustle. Sure. It's a seven day 24-hour operation because it's not like you just walk in, walk out, you know, clock in, clock out. You're always, you're always hustling. You're always grinding. But the flip side of it is, you know, you get to, you don't have to have, like you said, the brick and mortar right away. You can do it from your home. You can start small and you can work your way up. And a lot of people start this as a side hustle. There's tons of makers that we've had who, you know, are engineers or architects, teachers, and just did this as a side hustle, as a creative outlet. And now they built an app where now they're leaving those jobs and doing this full time. So yeah, there is some flexibility and kind of a safety net with that as well. Can we take a pause? Can you stick around for just a short segment before we head into sports at 925? I want to ask you about what you have coming up next, okay? Sounds good. Shandra Kremsky, co-founder Third and Bird. We're talking about the changing face of retail, the changing face of shopping and consumerism in our in our country and in our city. Ken says, as a consumer, this is at 780-6868, my spending habits are tracked in products that interest me, come up on my phone, a powerful marketing tool. That's not only from Amazon, that's also 
when you're using tools like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, in terms of marketing your products. So there's hey. a lot of benefits, not only to consumers, but makers and retailers as well. I was connected with a bunch of local businesses through, a th- I can't remember which medium, Facebook maybe the other day, because I was looking for this Manitoba slogan that I had seen. And next thing you know, right, what pops up in your feed, all sorts of different options that people have out there. Made in Manitoba. One of the preeminent festivals, happenings in our community every single year. Forget the summer. Mm -hmm. This is one of the highlights of the calendar year for me is the Winnipeg Fringe Festival. And it gets underway tonight. Tonight. Chuck McEwen is executive director of the Winnipeg Fringe Festival. We have him on the line now. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning. Did you sleep at all last night? Well, sleep is at a premium these days for me and all the fringe staff, as well as the nervous performers, because it is opening day, as you say. How excited are you? You're always uh, so full of energy, so it's tough to tell when you're excited and or nervous. Where where are you on either scale right now? A bit of both. You know, so much time and energy, as you know, goes into the planning and preparation. And then once you hit opening day, you just fingers crossed and hope it all goes well and it, for the next 12 days. So I'm a little nervous and excited at the same time. Well, let's talk about what we should look forward to. How many different productions and plays are being put on this week? This year, we have 178 indoor shows from, performed by artists from Manitoba, across Canada and around the world in 31 venues in downtown Winnipeg. It's big. Well, you are really uh, commanding us this year, too. You know, you have that call to action in every advertisement. You are just saying it. Get out here. That's right. If you've (laughs) never been, come for the first time. What is the theme this year, though? There's always sort of an overarching theme. Is there one this year, Chuck? Other than just getting here? Because we have so many great artists from around the world coming to entertain Winnipeg Fringe fans. If you've never been before, we we encourage you to come take a chance because you'll find something you like. If you like improv, if you like sports, if you like politics, you like Shakespeare, you're going to find something to to try out for the very first time. What I think people, if you haven't been before either, might not realize is just the activity that happens in and around all the different plays and performances. Like I'm looking on your website right now, Chuck, today at Old Market Square, starting at noon, you've got the big heist brass band, which I think we had in studio. Is that not the same brass band that we had? Something similar to them? They, I think so, yeah. They're, they're fantastic, and I think that what's really neat is that you don't have to necessarily attend one of the plays. You can be part of the festivities by just hitting up Old Market Square any day during Fringe Festival. That's right. I mean, we have the outdoor component at Old Market Square going, like you say, noon till midnight every day of the week. Every hour, there's another live band or a professional street performer to entertain the crowds. And then once you're on, you can grab some food or, or take the kids to the free kids' fringe activities. And then if you decide to come back and see a show, nothing wrong with that as well. Yeah, I love the auxiliary and the extra activities. It just brings such life to the city. And and that's really, uh, for me, as great as the plays are, as terrific as all the food is and, and some of your vendors that you enlist to, to be a part of this, Chuck, it is just the overall feeling that this creates for the city. It just takes us to a whole other plane, a whole other level, in my view. And the location of this festival has everything to do with that. 
Yeah, I agree. I think uh, the exchange district, uh, with the historic exchange district, it really feels like a community, like a living, breathing community during the Fringe Festival because there are so many uh, people downtown bustling around, going from venue to venue, uh, circling around the Market Square Park. It really has that vibrancy that I think a lot of people would prefer to see it like that year-round. And we're getting closer every year, but I, I agree with you. I like my biggest uh, favorite part of the festival is just listening and seeing people having fun, talking to each other in the lineups, saying, what did you see? What did you like? What are you going to go see next? That hub of activity where there's, there's no strangers at the fringe. As soon as you show up, you're part of a big family. I also like the section on your web- website that advises people how to fringe because there is so much choice out there. What are some of your best tips? Well, uh, you know, it can feel overwhelming with so many different plays. And, and like I said earlier, if, if you want to come out, there's 180 shows. You're gonna, if you like musicals, go to a musical. If you like improv, pick an improv show. Pick something that you think will appeal to your specific tastes. And then once you get into the habit of sort of selecting those kinds of shows, you can sort of branch out and take a few more chances. So there really is such a wide range of types of plays you're not going to have a hard time finding something. It's just coming out and making that choice. We were just having a conversation with Shander Kremski of Third and Bird Markets and mm-hmm. this idea of the changing face of retail. How am I going to tie this to Fringe? Here's how I'm going to do it. When you go down to Old Market Square, a lot of the performers are there handing out leaflets and they're trying to encourage you. They're recruiting you to come to their shows so you can actually meet the people that are going to be on mm-hmm. stage and they're asking you to come out and support them. And then you kind of create a relationship with them that may last from fringe to fringe. Or perhaps you go back and see the show again, bringing people with you that you know the second time or third time around. That's right. Like the the artists, there's a lot of competition, friendly competition. So they're out talking to patrons standing in line, promoting their shows, uh, encouraging them to come see. And like you say, many of the artists, they come year after year after year as part of their summer tour. And so a lot of our fringe fans, they have their five or six or eight shows they have to go see every year because they just love them. And then they mix in the new shows. So it, it's a really interesting environment when you've got people standing in line being flyered and promoted to and talked about, you know, and you say, oh, where are you from? I'm from Australia and I come here every year. It's my favorite fringe kind of a thing. It's really a unique opportunity to talk to the artists that are actually doing the work. All right, Chuck, I have a love-hate relationship with Saskatchewan. <laughs> but uh, the other part of the country that I have a real competition with in my mind is the city of Edmonton. The city of champions, as they were once <laughs> known as, they ruined my childhood year after year. The Blue Bombers uh, being beaten out by the Eskimos and the Jets by the Oilers. So Edmonton holds a really unspecial place in my heart. Are we going to beat Edmonton in terms of the biggest fringe in Canada this year? Well, I would like to say yes, but I am not hopeful. Uh, oh, we're always come very on, close. We're, uh, we're always very close. We're around 105 to 110,000 ticket attendants. They're about you know 115,000, give or take. But you know, it's funny that the two largest fringe festivals in North America are smaller cities in the heart of the country, and I think that shows just how supportive our communities are for independent art and theater and summer festivals. Um, don't forget, we're about 700, 750,000. They're over a million, so they have a, a bit of an advantage over our population. So tickets sold per capita, we, we, we crush them. Uh, there you go. I'm going to create that as a new <laughs> yes. issue for my press release. That's new a, metric, Chuck. That's you can long, have it. It's my gift to you. Long hashtag. Hashtag. More tickets per capita sold in Winnipeg than Edmonton. There you go. I love it. I love it. Chuck McHugh, an executive director of uh, Winnipeg Fringe Festival. Winnipegfringe.com is the website. Get all the advice, all the uh, information that you need there. Chuck, do you mind if we call on you a couple times over the next 11, 12 days here? 
I would be more than happy to chit-chat along the way to let you know how things are going. We love it, my friend. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. We'll see you at the park. You betcha. Chuck McEwen, uh, the Winnipeg Fringe Festival. And uh, it, it really is, Loren. I remember the very first Fringe Festival, Once Upon a Time, going down ex- the exchange district and going, what is going yeah. on here? What's with all the weird people? It's great. Great people watching. It's the like food 30 trucks years ago. are always set up. You grab yourself a, a, something to eat and just sit there and watch it all go by if you really want to. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.